The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. One moment, a business is on top of its game, profitable and well-respected. In the next moment, it could be the victim of a major fraud with potentially catastrophic consequences, financial losses, damaged reputation, diminished stakeholder value, scrutiny, even bankruptcy. These stories are all too common in today's business headlines. While some organizations recover, others don't make it. How do you minimize the risk of fraud and avoid the devastation? Welcome to Fraud Talk with host Chris Marquet. Our goal is to prevent your organization from becoming one of the statistics. Now, here is Chris Marquet. Good morning, Fraud Talkers. I am your host, Chris Marquet, on the Voice America Online Radio Network. Uh, we have a great program for you today with my special guest, Ernie Broad, who is a managing director with the Alvarez and Marsal's Global Forensic and Dispute Services Group, based out of New York City. Uh, he's also the firm's business intelligence uh, practice head, and um, he's an attorney by training and has over 30 years of business uh, experience in the complex investigations, litigation support, and business intelligence arena uh, as his second or third career. Uh, Ernie also has uh, spent many years uh, practicing law and doing other things prior to prior to getting into this business, and we'll get into that uh, in a minute. Uh, but before we get to Ernie, uh, I want to remind uh, everybody our mantra, uh, which is a, a phrase I, br- I uh, borrow from one of our, our colleagues. At any time in any organization, there's always somebody who's up to no good. And uh, here, Fraud Talk, we're here to try try to help people, educate people in the business community at large about the perils and pitfalls of fraud in today's economy and um, in doing business uh, in a straightforward and clean manner. So remember, the the call-in line, if you'd like to call and join the discussion uh, this morning, it is 866-472-472. 5790. That's uh, 866-472-5790 if you'd like to join the discussion. Also, you can find us on the major social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and we use the hashtag FraudTalk, one word, and we are at FraudTalk, and you can also find us on uh, our blog, FraudTalk on Blogspot. Call me or uh, contact me directly, chris at marquetinternational.com if you have a question, comment, or suggestion fraud of the week. Speaking of which, uh, this week's fraud of the week comes from Fraud Talk listener Valerie out of Cincinnati, Ohio, but it involves a $1 million embezzlement from a monastery across the river in Kentucky, which took place over a six-year period. And uh, from an amalgam of media sources uh, just uh, last week, I think Friday or Thursday, this this case uh, was reported uh, um, about a couple who pleaded guilty to uh, this million-dollar fraud uh, involving the Abbey of Gethsemane in uh, in Kentucky and uh, according to the the media 
Police say that the case of a million dollars stolen from a monastery might be one of the largest thefts ever ever in Nelson County, Kentucky. Uh, doesn't surprise me. Carrie and John Hutchinson, Hutchins took a plea deal, and they will now have to pay big. John Hutchins pleaded guilty to hundreds of charges for embezzling a million dollars from the Abbey of Gethsemane dating back to 2008. So that's a six-year period. It was all wire transfers. Money was transferred to the same bank from the, from the account in the Abbey to an account he had access to. From there, it was spent by debit card and check and cash, said Nelson County Detective Jason, uh, Jason Allison. He says the money was spent lavishly. There were lots of trips to the Bahamas. He flew up to Chicago for meals. A lot of money that was just, blown, just completely blown according to uh, the media accounts. So he uh, has been sentenced to 20 years in prison, which is the maximum penalty. Uh, the reality is that he'll end up spending about four or five in that case. The, his wife, Carrie, who was not quite as responsible as the husband, uh, <clears throat> but who was also uh, um, enjoying the fruits of the ill-gotten gains, uh, she will be sentenced to probation for two years. Uh, and, and the government came in and basically seized everything they had, uh, which is a nice thing, uh, including uh, watches and uh, exercise equipment, a couple of vehicles, a, a nice residence, uh, uh, big screen TVs, etc., etc. Forty-six thousand dollars cash in the bank, but there's still six hundred grand of restitution um, uh, yet to be paid back, and uh, authorities don't have a lot of hope that that's gonna that's gonna happen. And frankly, from my experience, it's uh, it'll be difficult to try to recover some of that, unless of course the Abbey had some some fraud insurance. This was probably in this case, uh, if any, uh, a nominal thing. Uh, so according to the media. The couple will be sentenced uh, formally in December, but that's look what looks like what's going to happen. Uh, once again, I uh, people, I guarantee that the monastery had little to no financial controls in place, and this fellow Hutchins uh, took uh, full advantage of that, as well as the fact that they trusted him implicitly. Uh, the million dollars uh, is a lot of money for this kind of organization. And, uh, you know, this is sort of illustrates the risk that, uh, you know, of affinity fraud type cases, Ponzi schemes and others, where you prey on a religious group or other affinity group, and there's already that trust factor built in, and which would allow somebody to take advantage of it. So <clears throat> that's kind of what happens uh, in, in situations like that. Um, in any event, uh, I want to get back to Ernie and introduce him. Ernie, how are you? Great this morning, Chris. How you doing? Very well, thank you. So just uh, full disclosure, people, uh, I've known Ernie now for 30 years. It's kind of frightening to think that. Uh, but uh, dating back to, I believe, 1984, uh, when I was at Kroll Associates and Ernie joined, um, let me just, uh, Ernie, uh, I mean, it's hard to believe it's been that long. Yes, yes, it is, Chris. You were, you were, you were very young at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was still in high school. Whatever. No. <laughs> um, Ernie, let me just read a little bit from Ernie's bio. Ernie, Ernest Broad, Managing Director of Alvarez and Marcel's Global Forensic and Dispute Services Group, and he leads the uh, firm's practice, uh, business intelligence practice. He has extensive experience in applying cutting-edge forensic techniques to corporate investigations and providing in-depth business intelligence services to clients around the globe. Before Alvarez and Marcel, Mr. Broad led the business intelligence practice at Navigant and was a director of the forensic and dispute services practice for Deloitte 
uh, also FAS Group. Earlier, spent 17 years with Kroll as one of the leaders of their investigations and intelligence business, uh, business intelligence group, and was founder and CEO of CityGate Global Intelligence, where I also was a partner with Ernie. Uh, at Kroll, Mr. Broad is credited with groundbreaking work in applying a variety of investigative tools on behalf of companies engaged in litigation, internal investigations, global asset searches, and in-depth corporate contests uh, and transactions. He led high-profile engagements, including the search for baby Doc Duvalier's pirated assets out of the government of Haiti. Didn't he just die, Ernie? He just did. Brought the he whole just- story back to the front pages. Yeah, yeah, well, we can talk about that. Um, and, but in any event, uh, Ernie also, another major area that Ernie was, uh, was a, uh, a factor was defending corporate uh, companies against their corporate raiders back in the 1980s and 90s uh, and helped develop the whole concept of business intelligence for purposes in working with uh, proxy solicitors and lawyers and trying to defend these companies from, from the raiders uh, going, going back some time. And still today, this is a big area of your practice, isn't it, Ernie? It is, because now the, what used to be called corporate raiders are called activists. <laughs> That's right. They are activists. They're, act, they're wearing three-piece suits, but they're doing pretty much the same thing. That's right. That's right. So the other, another big area was the asset searches. Um, but um, but Ernie, just to, just to finish out your bio here, um, he's been involved in hundreds of M and A cases, joint ventures, franchises, licensing cases, uh, uh, distributorship arrangements where due diligence was uh, an important. Uh, aspect, uh, but also in the whole area of uh, corporate compliance and risk, uh, the FCPA, that is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, anti-money laundering and terrorism concerns. Uh, Ernie spent prior to his, uh, this is like his third career, he spent uh, a number of years as an attorney with the Federal Trade Commission uh, and it was also the general counsel at Western Union International uh, for about 15 years. Um, <clears throat> bio needs to be updated here, Ernie, because it's says 25 Years, 30 years in the business. But, uh, but Ernie's written extensively. He spoke, speaks extensively before a whole series of different groups, including the Federal Bar Council and other, and the, and the New York City Bar Association and many other groups uh, affiliated uh, uh, with law and investigations. Uh, and just to round it out, Ernie got his uh, BA degree from Columbia, as well as his, his JD, his law degree from Columbia University Law School. Uh, and um, that's uh, that's Ernie. Well, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> it's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. Sorry about that. No, no, no. It's uh, it's 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 very impressive. Uh, and so you made a switch, Ernie. You went from you doing you know you went from actually you were in the in the government uh, at the FTC, and then you went to Western Union as in-house counsel. I can see that switch. Um, and then you you kind of. Took a, a left turn, uh, maybe it was a right turn, and uh, got in this whole area of business intelligence and investigations, uh, joining Kroll in 1984. How did that whole, how did that evolution occur? Oh, like like so many things in one's career, total serendipity. I had made the switch, as you pointed out, from from law to business. Had done a uh, startup and was kind of wondering what to do with the next stage of my career. When a very good friend of mine at the law firm of Wachtel uh, Lipton told me about a company called Kroll Associates, which I had never heard of, uh, and described it as an investigations firm, uh, a concept I'd also never uh, heard of. 
but uh, Wachtell Lipton had started to work with Kroll, using Kroll to kind of do detective work in hostile takeovers to look into the backgrounds of these corporate uh, raiders. Uh, and not much more than that at, at the time uh, that, I, that I joined. Uh, I was uh, immediately hooked the, the concept of finding things out about people and companies and getting paid for it uh, was irresistible. Uh, I had always been interested in journalism and really would have liked to have gone into journalism rather than law, but uh, listened to my parents, which is what one did back in those um, generations. Uh, and uh, this investigative work seemed like the closest thing to journalism I, I could imagine, finding things out about people and companies and reporting uh, that to, uh, to clients. And if I hadn't been uh, hooked as early as I was, I certainly would have been hooked when my first major engagement and assignment at Crow was uh, looking for Baby Doc Duvalier's uh, assets around the world, which you mentioned. Uh, Baby Doc uh, had succeeded his father as dictator of, of Haiti, dictator for life, as they were uh, called. Uh, but finally, the uh, the country turned on him, and he was uh, ousted. Uh, and of course, it was clear that he'd been using uh, the, the the country's central bank as his uh, piggy bank. And the government was uh, eager to try to recapture uh, his uh, assets, hundreds and hundreds of millions of uh, dollars that could have been anywhere in the world. It, it was. Uh, quite an awakening uh, for me to, to be one of the first Americans to show up in Port-au-Prince, uh, Haiti, after the revolution and meet with the new government. Uh, and more of an awakening uh, some months later when it became clear to me that the reason we were having so much trouble getting the, the country's records, which would have been helpful to us, was that the new government, which contained many of the same people the old government, was not really interested in having us do this thing too carefully because it would implicate too many of those people. So they were uh, giving us just enough information to make it look like they were really interested in recapturing and repatriating all these assets while they were really dragging their, uh, their, their feet. Yeah, and this this is sort of uh, similar to some of the other cases that we may talk about that uh, that we worked on back in those those halcyon days. Uh, and I, if I recall correctly, we only have uh, about ten seconds. Here. Uh, there were there were assets in France and other places that uh, that we actually were able to identify. We did. We we found many tens of millions of assets, but not the hundreds of hundreds of millions that we knew were out there. Yeah, and you're never going to find everything. And this this harkens back forward to today uh, when we're and we'll talk about assets recovery uh, cases when we come back. Everybody, uh, we've been talking to Ernie Broad. We'll be back in two minutes. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. 
Our highly competitive business world is fraught with risks and challenges. Critical business decisions must be made on a daily basis with precision when significant capital is at risk. When your organization is faced with a decision point involving opportunity and risk, consult with Marquet International, global experts in due diligence, investigations, and litigation support. Marquet International professionals assist organizations with vetting key individuals and businesses, as well as conducting sensitive employee or executive misconduct investigations. Our experts work with corporate counsel to develop facts and intelligence related to parties and circumstances in litigation, including conducting interviews, deep background investigations, and asset recovery inquiries. We are recognized in the area of fraud investigations, response and business controls consulting. When circumstances require sensitive and and professional fact-finding, turn to Marquet International, world leaders in investigations and risk mitigation. Visit MarquetInternational.com or call 617-733-3304. Workplaces are only as strong as their teams. Teams are only as strong as their individual members. Are you seeking a better way to take your business to a higher level? We're here to help. Listen for Leading with Social-Emotional Intelligence, Building Trust Through Intentionality and Vulnerability with host Glenn Harris. Together, we'll explore the five key behaviors of a cohesive team and other concepts designed to keep your team working smarter. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are tuned in to Fraud Talk with Chris Marquet. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to Chris at marquetinternational.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at M-A-R-Q-U-E-T international.com. Now, back to Fraud Talk. Welcome back, Fraud Talkers. Uh, I am your host, Chris Marquet. We've been speaking with uh, uh, my old colleague, Ernie Broad, who is uh, a managing director at uh, Alvarez and Marsal's uh, Forensic uh, and Dispute Resolution Group, and he also heads up their business intelligence practice. Uh, welcome back, Ernie. Thank you, Chris. We, we, Ernie was just telling us about his early career and joining uh, when he joined Kroll back in 1984 and started working on uh, some international asset recovery type cases. In this, in this instance, uh, the case involving Baby Doc Duvalier. Maybe, Ernie, we can just round out that case. Uh, you, you're describing how you went down there. It was, uh, it was kind of shocking. Uh, they, they really didn't, I mean, in reality, was they really didn't want you to find too much and dig too deeply. Uh, because mo- most of the people that were still in the government were, you know, implicitly involved in in some of the illicit uh, activities. Yeah, we uh, that that case um, led to other searches for the assets of deposed uh, dictators. Kind of had a deposed dictator department going there for a while, which was which was fun. Uh, but those were always hampered by that the kind of political uh, involvement that I was mentioning for Duvalier. Today, when my group does global asset searches, we don't have that issue. 
uh, it's clearer situations where obviously our client desperately wants to recover assets. And we've moved uh, in here in, in these last few years at, at Alvarez and Marcel away from deposed dictators to looking for the assets of countries, of, of nations, uh, which is no less exciting than it was to, to look for deposed dictators. Uh, assets. So, so like in the case of Argentina, for example, that, yeah. that might... Go ahead. That's one example. We're not doing that one, and I couldn't tell you the... I'm not allowed to tell you the, the cases we're exactly doing, but we are at the moment searching for the assets around the world uh, of a uh, Latin American sovereign uh, country, uh, having to do with the uh, expropriation of assets of major U.S. companies. In the last couple of years, we've looked for the assets of two different countries. We've looked for the assets of several state-owned uh, entities, which are almost in the place of um, countries. And it's exciting to, to start out with a fairly blank slate and look at the, the globe and figure out where might the assets be and in which jurisdictions uh, are there the kinds of legal systems that would uh, make it easy to actually freeze uh, assets and then uh, recover them. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, legal strategy uh, that goes alongside the very intense investigative work in, in global um, assets. And these uh, these cases are really quite difficult to to do, uh, as I know uh, directly. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons is, you know, the client is spending good money after bad. Number one, uh, so there's always a, sort of a high expectation and a sort of angst about you know having to go through the process. But number two, you know, as you alluded to, you know, privacy laws in different jurisdictions around the world uh, make it, you know. Um, difficult and or more difficult or less difficult uh, to do certain things in those various jurisdictions. Exactly. Um, the asset searching, of course, can can be in so many different uh, areas. We've been talking about the, uh, the, the the higher level global types of asset searches, but in the last few years, ever since the the, the global economy went south in two thousand and eight. We've been getting more and more cases from people who are considering bringing lawsuits against some other company or person, but aren't sure it's worth spending the money to bring the lawsuit because they're not sure if the person and company they'd be suing will have enough assets to cover the amount of the uh, claim. So, so we we're talking about a sort of an assessment. Exactly. They're, they're more... Uh, uh, they're more likely to be asset assessments than actual looking to recover assets, although from an investigative standpoint, the process is pretty much the same. And as you say, this is the hardest kind of work that an investigator does, the greatest likelihood of an unsatisfied client at the end. And I often find myself in the position of trying to talk people out of doing <clears throat> these kinds of investigations, and human nature being what it is, uh, the, the harder I, I tell people that you probably don't want to do this, the more eager they are <laughs> to actually do it. Yes, uh, I'm familiar with that. Uh, the so I mean, what happens, uh, people, is that uh, you know you get into this again, good money after bad. Uh, you start trying to turn stones. Uh, you know, strict uh, bank secrecy laws. You know, it's not like they can say you can say, hey, uh, Ernie, uh, why don't you just get me the bank accounts? 
Um, I mean, you, you've heard that before, no? All the time. Clients constantly <clears throat> assume that we can get them a bank account information. We could get it, but we'd wind up in jail. It, <clears throat> it is a felony uh, under U.S. law to get personal financial uh, information by, right. by uh, means of deceit. So tell, tell us just uh, briefly, tell us uh, some of the, you know, what are the kinds of things that you look for and how, how you do that? Well, in, in asset searching, uh, as in so many of the other investigations, the, the key thing is to find people who know things. So the days of just trying to uh, conduct investigations online with so-called open sources are pretty much behind us. Uh, the online open sources are a good platform to get started, but after that, you've got to go out and talk to people. And yeah, I, so... Go ahead. My, my favorite asset search story, which is also a Ponzi uh, story. Do we have time for it in this segment, Chris? It's a, uh, well, it's well, we'll, we'll probably have to roll it over, but, uh, but uh, right, why don't you me, go ahead and describe let, let, me, let me get started. I call this the K Caper case. Uh, it, it's probably the most interesting one that I've done in, in recent years. It has to do with a fellow named Kirk Wright. I can talk about this for a reason that you'll understand at the end of the... Uh, In fact, uh, Kirk Wright went to Dartmouth College, didn't he? Oh, my goodness. I forgot about that connection. Let's hope <laughs> that's the only connection, Chris. I think he was a year or two behind me, or maybe even in my class, which is horrifying. Uh, okay. It's but, an interesting coincidence. But well, go ahead. Just describe the Kirk Wright. He, by the way, people, you, if you go to Mark Hay International's website, there's this Kirk Wright story uh, in the White Collar Rogues Gallery, uh, if you're interested. But go ahead, Ernie. Tell, tell, I didn't describe realize it was in your list. Okay. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great story, not for the people who invested with him, unfortunately. Uh, Kirk was a, an African-American uh, hedge fund guy in Atlanta and got the idea of, of going into business on his own and solicited uh, investments from the African-American professional and sports community in Atlanta. So he put together big bundles of money from football players, from uh, African-American doctors, lawyers, and other professionals. And the fund got to $100 million rather uh, quickly. And, of course, the returns that he was showing to people were uh, spectacular, which is what happens in Ponzi schemes. And then one of these football players got into uh, a little bit of a financial mess and, and wanted to take uh, money uh, out. Always a problem in Ponzi schemes, and the whole thing started to um, unravel. Uh, and at the end of the unraveling, uh, Kirk Wright was nowhere to be found, nor was the $100 million anywhere to be found. And it was at that point that we were called in, our team, uh, by the trustee in, uh, in bankruptcy, and uh, after looking through uh, the public records and the uh, emails that we had access to, we discovered an enormous number of potential uh, sources of information that we could interview. In, in any case of that kind, finding an ex-wife or a, a girlfriend is, yeah. is a nugget of gold. In this case, we had an excess of riches. There were so many girlfriends that you could see in the uh, in the emails. And the crazy thing about this, and the reason I call this the K caper, is that Kirk had named all of his four children with names that started with K. 
And every one of his girlfriends, two of whom we could tell from the emails, thought that he was going to leave his wife and marry them. Every one of those girlfriends had a first name that started with K. It's absolutely bizarre. How weird is that? So when we, when we um, went around looking for his assets, we could tell from talking to some of these people that he made frequent trips to the country of Jamaica. So we talked to our resource down there, and I remember saying to him, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but in your investigative work, please start with Kingston. Look for streets that start with the letter K. <laughs> Look for <laughs> banks. Look for banks that start with the letter K. I'd like to tell you that that's exactly where we found the money. The story isn't that good, Um, but we did discover uh, quite a bit of uh, money. During all of this time, Kirk was missing in action. He was eventually found by the uh, FBI in plain sight at, at uh, at poolside, I should say, in a resort in Miami. He was arrested, and the night before his arraignment, he uh, committed suicide in the jail. Uh, sad and tragic. Yeah. He was uh, he he was under operating at that time under a false identity, uh, Mark Lakian, I believe. I think that's uh, right. And uh, so they they found uh, you know, a bunch of cash on him or what have you. Um, <clears throat> but he did uh, he did commit suicide. Uh, yeah, I guess he was a, f- a few years behind me at Dartmouth, but I think that's where he went to school. I mean, I may be wrong about that, but uh, <clears throat> anyway. Uh, so it, the the assets you, you you actually were able to recover some assets for the client. We in this case. we we were not the full amount. He clearly had lived very very well with his various uh, girlfriends. A real collateral damage in this case was his wife, whom I interviewed. A, a wonderful. A woman herself, a, uh, a a lawyer, and she was home raising her four children, thinking that that Kirk was running a uh, legitimate, wonderfully successful business. When she got a call uh, late one night that awakened her from a woman who clearly had been drinking, introduced herself as Kira, <laughs> and Kirk's wife said, "I who who are you? I don't know who you are." And she said, "How could you not know me?" I'm I'm your husband's mistress, and when he leaves you next month, he's going to marry me. She oh, uh, hung up the phone, and the next morning showed up uh, at the office uh, of, of the hedge fund while Kirk was out of town, demanded to see the emails, found all these emails with uh, the girlfriends, and called in the law enforcement, and that's how the whole thing unraveled. Wow, it's a great story. All right, uh, we've been speaking with uh, Ernie Broad, uh, regaling us with some some incredible stories. We'll be back in two minutes. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 
Our highly competitive business world is fraught with risks and challenges. Critical business decisions must be made on a daily basis with precision when significant capital is at risk. When your organization is faced with a decision point involving opportunity and risk, consult with Marquet International, global experts in due diligence, investigations, and litigation support. Marquet International professionals assist organizations with vetting key individuals and businesses, as well as conducting sensitive employee or executive misconduct investigations. Our experts work with corporate counsel to develop facts and intelligence related to parties and circumstances in litigation, including conducting interviews, deep background investigations, and asset recovery inquiries. We are recognized in the area of fraud investigations, response and business controls consulting. When circumstances require sensitive and and professional fact-finding, turn to Marquet International, world leaders in investigations and risk mitigation. Visit MarquetInternational.com or call 617-733-3304. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are tuned in to Fraud Talk with Chris Marquet. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to chris at marquetinternational.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at M-A-R-Q-U-E-T international.com. Now, back to Fraud Talk. Welcome back, Fraud Talkers. I'm your host, Chris Marquet, and with me today is my old friend and colleague, uh, Ernie Broad. And we've been talking about a number of different types of uh, cases that, uh, that Ernie's worked on over the years. And uh, Ernie, welcome back. Thanks, Chris. This has been fun to, uh, to talk about some of these old cases. Yeah, well, uh, actually, the Kirk Wright case wasn't quite so old, but uh, yeah. it does go back a few years. Um, but uh, we were talking uh, in the break about uh, some of the other fraud cases. I mean, you've worked on just about every, any fraud you can imagine, whether it's a Ponzi scheme, uh, employee theft, uh, intellectual property theft, uh, uh, FCPA, you name it, uh, you know, bribery. You've, you've, you've been involved in just about any kind of fraud that you can imagine. Uh, Absolutely, Chris. One one of the uh, advantages of, uh, of of age and maturity and experience uh, is that I, I I recognize these uh, frauds. They you know we uh, the, the the modern age and the internet uh, age sounds like it brings us new kinds of frauds, but in fact there is nothing new under the sun. They just use slightly different um, approaches, but it's the same kinds of uh, frauds over and over again. 
Yeah, and I can't wait till I get age, uh, uh, experience, and maturity as well. Um, <laughs> but uh, so we were talking about. No, you're right. Uh, and, and when I talk about these embezzlement cases, it, there's not many of them. It's it's old. It's old tech. There's nothing high tech about it. It's simple old, you know, check writing, uh, fraudulent check writing, simple schemes. These are schemes. This uh, the advanced payment scheme. Describe that you you were recently involved in a, an advanced payment type scheme. Uh, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, that was this was kind of fun again, fun for us, not for the uh, <laughs> not for the clients and the victims right. of the of the this game. Uh, this crosses over between um, international uh, due diligence, checking out people you're going to look into do business with when they're particularly when they're outside of your own country, uh, as well as fraud and advanced payment uh, schemes. Uh, there was a, uh, a company in uh, Germany, which turned out to be our uh, client after they were uh, defrauded. They were in the um, emerging energy uh, field and uh, wanted to raise uh, money. They were having trouble raising their 60 or $70 million from traditional financing sources. And on the Internet, they ran into a group of people who claimed to have had years of experience in raising uh, money in those kinds of um, circumstances. They had lots of phone calls uh, with these people. The, the people all had impressively named companies attached um, to them. And they signed a uh, contract with these people for this group to raise the $70 million, uh, for them. All our client company in Germany had to do was send $1 million to be put in uh, escrow to fund some of the expenses in raising the $70 uh, million. Mm. The company did that, sent the money into what they thought was a safe uh, escrow uh, account and waited for the $70 million to come in. And, of course, there was one excuse after another about the reasons why the money had not yet been raised. And finally... They ran out of patience and asked for their uh, money back. And when they contacted the escrow uh, holder, they couldn't reach him and had no way of getting their million dollars, at which point they had understood that they had been bamboozled and came to us. So surprise, started, surprise, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So we started to research these people and companies and the, the fellow on my team who was actually working the case, doing the open source online uh, research, would come in running into my office every hour to say, you're not going to believe this. And then two hours later, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. Every one of the, I think it was seven uh, individuals whom we were researching, every one of them either had a bankruptcy uh, or a felony conviction, or both, in his background, which was right out there uh, on the on on the internet. It it, it was absolutely astonishing. They they were in effect a a mob, a financial mob who had come together. The escrow holder was a disbarred uh, lawyer uh, who had been thrown out of his office for not non payment of uh, rent. You could not imagine uh, a, a, a less attractive group of people to do uh, business with, but the uh, client was taken in by their by their uh, golden words, which is what happens in these cases, and by their hunger uh, 
to get what they needed to make their business uh, succeed. They, so, it was so a these classic guys, advanced payments uh, scheme. And these guys were U.S.-based or, or North America-based? Six of them were U.S.-based. One was uh, Swiss-based. Mm. So again, this is a classic, classic advanced payment scheme type situation. But they had to. I mean, they had they 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 had to have you know you know other you know references or whatever to try to lure these guys in, or, or did they not even do, did they not even go that far in their own due diligence? They did not go that far. The the company names that they were uh, given had their own websites, which, of course, were, were perfectly uh, clean, but they did not look behind uh, any of that uh, into the backgrounds of these uh, individuals. Had those people been in their own country, they either would have done that or would have had the kinds of, of sources, business contacts, and connections who could have helped them. In the, so, in the early years of, of uh, Kroll, Chris, when you and I were getting into this uh, business, we, we would run into this problem all the time. We would uh, promote our services of checking out a potential business partner, and clients would say, potential clients would say to us, I, I don't need to spend that money. I've got a friend in that country. I've got right. a, friend, a lawyer or an accountant or a business person in that country, and I can find out from him what I need to know. Obviously, not the way the game should work. Right. Yeah. No. This is this is a great example of why, especially today. I mean, business today obviously is global. People are you know every day doing business uh, cross border uh, business, uh, whether it's between uh, New York and, and Massachusetts or uh, the United States and uh, in uh, the Middle East or some other location or Latin America, you name it, uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, the idea of trying to uh, conduct business on a you know large or significant scale without any real kicking of the tires is almost ludicrous at this point uh, but it goes on uh, doesn't it? it it goes on all the time and you you've got them listed on on your uh, fraud uh, website and it's the kind of thing that keeps our team here at Alvarez and Marcel uh, busy, uh, very busy. So what are the kinds of things, and I know that uh, when we talk about trying to vet uh, individuals and organizations overseas, uh, you know, the differences in, in, you know, here in the United States uh, where we happen to be based or North America and a lot of the Western countries, there's a lot of public record that exists. And, of course, that's the first place to, to start looking. You're going to find those bankruptcies if you actually take the time to look uh, or the criminal convictions and what have you. But uh, but you still would you still want to talk to people here in the United States. But that's triple, quadruple, tenfold more important uh, overseas in other and developing nations where the public record really doesn't exist or that that does exist is is nominal and uh, in some cases meaningless. Talk, talk about that a bit, Ernie. Exactly right. And, and one of the skill sets of a, a global investigations and intelligence team like ours here at Alvarez and Marcel is that we have people everywhere in the world, and I mean everywhere, and we have experience working everywhere in the world. So in these last three years, roughly one-tenth of, of my experience in this business, here at Alvarez and Marcel, we've worked in 57 countries. And just about every country 
is different in terms of the of the public record. It's different in terms of how much there is on the public record, what kinds of things uh, appear. In some countries, uh, criminal backgrounds will appear on the public record. In others, they won't. In some countries, civil litigation is on the public record. In other countries, uh, it's not. In some countries, uh, motor vehicle bureau driving records is available. In others, it's not. In some countries, bankruptcies are available. In others, they're, they're not. Another problem is whether you can trust what you're seeing on the public record in certain parts of the of the world. In yeah. certain areas, in certain areas, people pay uh, to remove negative things on the public record and pay to insert positive things on the public record. So, as you were saying, it's very important to have live sources of information uh, to talk to uh, when when the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Is, is as crucial to U.S. business as it is now and as dangerous to U.S. business as it is now, you really have to check people out before you become their business partners. And even if everything looks perfectly fine on the public record, and even if they appear to have good reputations, you need to know about their relationships with government uh, officials. And how closely involved is someone from the government going to be in the overseas part of, of this business you're getting uh, into? Because it, it doesn't have to be as obvious as payoffs to government officials to get you in trouble with the FCPA. It can be something like hiring the son or daughter of a government official to work in your company, which is seen by the SEC here in the U.S. as an indirect form of uh, bribery. Right, right. We're going to have to take a break here, Ernie, and we'll be back in two minutes. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Our highly competitive business world is fraught with risks and challenges. Critical business decisions must be made on a daily basis with precision when significant capital is at risk. When your organization is faced with a decision point involving opportunity and risk, consult with Marquet International, global experts in due diligence, investigations, and litigation support. Marquet International professionals assist organizations with vetting key individuals and businesses, as well as conducting sensitive employee or executive misconduct investigations. Our experts work with corporate counsel to develop facts and intelligence related to parties and circumstances in litigation, including conducting interviews, deep background investigations, and asset recovery inquiries. We are recognized in the area of fraud investigations, response, and business controls consulting. When circumstances require sensitive and professional fact-finding, turn to Marquet International, world leaders in investigations and risk mitigation. Visit MarquetInternational.com or call 617-733-3304. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host. 
as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Fraud Talk with Chris Marquet. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to Chris at marquetinternational.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at M-A-R-Q-U-E-T international.com. Now, back to Fraud Talk. Welcome back, Fraud Talkers, to our final segment. And I've been speaking today with uh, my friend and former colleague, uh, Ernie Broad, uh, talking about a variety of different kinds of cases. Uh, most recently, we're talking about the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and how important it is to make sure you vet the people you're doing business with uh, overseas. Uh, I mean, one of the things, Ernie, that we always talked about was, you know, these five, these so-called five percenters who uh, approach or, you know, you, you know, the company that's looking to do business in, let's say, in Brazil, uh, and they're people who offer their services to help help the company establish the market in Brazil, uh, and they'll take 5% of the deal. Uh, yellow flag, perhaps? Uh, ab- absolutely. Uh, agents of that kind, brokers of uh, the type you're talking about, are usually the first kinds of people we look at, and we are uh, we, we have been engaged by several companies that have relationships around the world. One hospitality company that uh, uh, owns hotels and motels uh, around the world has engaged us to look at every one of the um, brokers who brought them into their uh, opportunities in Latin America, Asia, and Europe. And in every case, we're looking to see whether there were payoffs that came uh, out of out of that one percent or five uh, percent payoffs, which involved uh, government uh, officials, which immediately would have brought our U.S. client uh, into problems with the uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Yeah, and in fact, uh, uh, the FCPA has been over the last five to eight years uh, been enforced very, very aggressively, many more um, cases being brought by the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice against uh, not only U.S. businesses, but a foreign entities that have U.S. operations, and if they touch in the U.S. and it's a U.S. branch or whatever, uh, operating overseas and they're paying, they're making you know payments of some kind or another, they can fall uh, under scrutiny of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act as well, Correct. Absolutely. The SEC, which for years uh, did not put much teeth uh, into the FCPA, has now turned it into uh, a vehicle <clears throat> Excuse me, that every U.S. company that does any business overseas needs to worry about, and many, as you say, foreign companies that do business in the U.S. have to worry about as well. But in addition to the FCPA, Chris, there's other kinds of uh, corruption that go sure. on in this world. And we've been involved in one, um, again, fascinating case for us, not so much fun for the American company. Uh, This involves a a U.S. Fortune 50 company, very large uh, household name company that um, had a small um, operation in a Latin American country. 
and got into some conversations with a, uh, a, a local entrepreneur about the possibility of selling their local plant to that entrepreneur. The U.S. company, in the midst of those negotiations, decided they didn't really care for this guy and pulled out, uh, which they had every right to do under their negotiations. At most, if this sale had gone through, it would have involved perhaps a million and a half uh, dollars, quite a small uh, deal by the standards of American companies. The uh, local partner uh, went into uh, court in the local court uh, claiming that he uh, was deprived of major future earnings opportunities by this horrible American company. And the local court came back with a judgment of $500 million on behalf <laughs> of their uh, local uh, pal against the American company. The American company appealed through the court system of that country. and smallest, A smallest country, I'm assuming. A small country. The, uh, the, the uh, appeals court was much more reasonable. They cut the judgment from $500 million to $250 million. <laughs> <laughs> so it became clear to the U.S. company that they were going to get no relief in the local courts. They went into an international arbitration um, uh, entity which uh, takes cases against governments, against countries, and the theory was that that country was permitting countenancing corruption in their judicial system, and the U.S. company was is still pursuing that case uh, in international arbitration. Uh, our group was engaged to put together evidence of the uh, corruption uh, in that country's judicial system, and I'd like to say we did fantastic investigative work, and we did, but it was also a little bit like shooting fish in a barrel. The evidence of bribery to the judges uh, in that in that country was everywhere and quite uh, open, and many, many people knew uh, about it. So all of that is still working its way uh, through the, the international uh, systems. So, so and again, here, here we're talking about, uh, you know, American co- big American company A doing business in small uh, country B, developing nation B, where, you know, a lot of the country is basically run by uh, eight different families. Everybody knows each other, uh, include, and, and, and family members are judge, judges as well. In this case, I mean, this is a very serious situation where judges are being paid and you end up with a a really sticky situation that uh, that the company found itself in. It's um, we actually call this Project Kafka because it's a Kafkaesque <laughs> uh, story, uh, and it's certainly it's certainly not the only one. Right. So, Ernie, uh, what uh, what's next for Ernie? I mean, there's got to be a book in here for you. There's got to be a book somewhere. I have been approached about books. I've been approached about television anthology uh, series. The problem is confidentiality uh, and and the trust that I continue to have with uh, clients. If I were ever to retire, I could obviously uh, 
work this out one way or another, but since I never intend to retire, I'm afraid... Yeah, you're never going to retire. It's never going to happen, Chris. Yeah, no, I know. (laughs) Never going to retire, and therefore never going to write the book. But I get opportunities like this to tell the stories to to nice people like you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And actually, uh, I've had the pleasure and honor of working with Ernie and his team uh, from time to time, and it's a uh, it's a great uh, it's a great thing because case, uh, Ernie's cases are always very very interesting and usually uh, very fast paced uh, and usually very high profile. So, uh, Ernie, I want to thank you for for joining us today. It's uh, it's been a pleasure uh, regaling us with uh, with your stories, and um, we wish you the best of luck. Uh, and the team at Alvarez and Marsal. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chris. It's it's a pleasure talking to you and your and your listeners. This is a, a great program. We will be back next week, same time, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, our guest next week is uh, Kathy Jessup. She is a reporter and a writer uh, in Michigan, and she covers typically you know, court proceedings and business matters in, in the Michigan business world. And recently she penned a terrific six-part series on the topic of embezzlement, uh, of which uh, Mich- the state of Michigan has there's been... You you know, tons of cases up in, in that particular jurisdiction. Uh, she wrote a very insightful uh, series, uh, which you can go, I think you can find, I think I may have linked it on our b- uh, blog at Fraud Talk blog. Uh, but in any event, uh, it should be should make for an interesting discussion. And that will be next week. Uh, once again, Ernie, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Chris Marquet. We look forward to speaking with everybody uh, next week. Thank you for listening to Fraud Talk this week. Please join Chris Marquet again next Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Don't become a victim of fraud. Tune in for another show soon. We'll be right back.